Welcome to the August episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders, an original podcast series produced by the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists. I'm Seth O'Brien, Vice President of Prosthetics at Wheeler OMP and Chair of the Academy's Scientific Societies Committee. Today, I'm excited to welcome Brian Emling, CPO and Chair of the Academy's CADCAM Society. Brian's a certified and licensed prosthetist orthotist with Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Brian lives in Atlanta, where he enjoys playing mahjong with friends, tug of war with his flat coat retriever, cooking alongside his amazing wife, and running through the woods. Brian, it's great to see you, and thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and uh, actually quite an honor to be asked, so I appreciate that you respect my input. Well, I, I think uh, congratulations maybe in order, first of all, to kick it off here. I hear you have a little one on the way. Is that right? Yeah, uh, due in October, uh, actually Friday, October 13th is the due date. Oh, man. Yeah, so we'll see if it actually comes then. And if it does, well, we'll hopefully retell the story of Friday the 13th being a, a bad day to being an amazing day. Yeah, that would go a long way in explaining so much more for my two, but neither one of them were born on Friday the 13th. Sometimes it feels like they should have been, though. <laughs> uh, I'm sure my kid's going to be a perfect angel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, let's start out. You know, everybody has sort of these unique, interesting, or are often have unique and interesting entry points to the field. How did you come to find the field of OMP? Yeah, I uh, I think a lot of people at ONP probably have like a, a similar experience in that they didn't just get into ONP, they they maybe stumbled into it. And uh, that's my story. I, I was actually working in a uh, at a rock climbing company and we were manufacturing rock climbing holds, so design and production. And it was a lot of fun. And, and I love working with my hands. My, my kind of background is in this, like studio arts and business management. But there wasn't much to it at the end of the day, and and then there really wasn't much of a future in it, at least that I could see. So I looked around into different fields and, and was eventually introduced actually through Wendy Beattie. I shattered her for a day, and, and really all it took was walking into the back lab to see what I would be working with on a day-to-day basis. And it's like, where was my high school teacher when... When, yeah. when I was asking, well, you know, what fields I'd be good at, I, I remember I got, like, I was told I, I'd be good at being a plumber, a teacher, a painter, and, like, a dancer or something like that. And I was like, O&P was clearly, like, what I was intended to do. So if by chance anyone out there is listening that could be a high school or related to, uh, has some connection to a high school counselor, please educate them. On that. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you may have dominated the market for dancing plumbers, and it's not too late. So it is. It is. I'll consider that after retirement. Did you use any of the digital technologies back when you were doing the indoor rock climbing uh, design and, and stuff like that? Or was the digital technologies and sort of the CAD CAM interest something that spawned from the OMP side of things for you? Yeah, the field of rock climbing hold making was, I guess, a lot like OMP in that, you know, they used a floral foam to hand carve these shapes and they've been doing it like that for years and so cad cam and the use of technology to change production side was not happening and a lot of people were actually pretty resistant to it and then i got out of out of it and i think rock climbing really increased in popularity and a lot more walls were going up and so like as I got out of it, there was a lot more cam going into it just to quickly produce holds and get these the holds fabricated. So no, I, I didn't see it. And it wasn't until, it actually wasn't even until really residency that I got to see more of CAD CAM and O&P 
and from there it was still like yeah this is something that's available or that people are using but we aren't so i was introduced really to it in residency and then it was in practice that it just made a lot of sense that there were areas that it could be beneficial from a clinical practice side sure were you an avid rock climber or what what does brian do for fun outside of work yeah rock climbing was i think as I've gotten into the field in my career, I, you know, I used to be a, a climber, a skydiver, a, all of the things that every parent cringes over. And now I'm I'm working full time, and I'm worried about insurance. And uh, as you know, my interests, I play with my dog. I play mahjong, which is maybe an activity of those over sixty five. And I love pickleball. So, well, it's another young man's game, right there. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really crushing this uh, middle age period in my life and, and approaching what's coming. <laughs> I love it. I know that you first got involved with the Academy many years ago as a student and a resident member. I'm really curious. Can you tell me about your experience with the mentoring program? I think did you were involved in the mentoring program, right? And, and I'm curious if it was something that you really found valuable as you were entering the profession. Yeah. So gosh, that was, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Uh, Lee Davis, I think it was. Yeah, Lee at the time was the mentoring committee chair, and and I think she was ready to transition, and she tapped me to kind of step into her shoes. And at the time, like at least the academy is really wanting to kind of connect with the students, so we created a student resident position and tried to get like a student from each school connected to the student resident committee. And so that there was like more information that could be taken from the academy and, and pushed down through the students so that they were aware of what was coming and what was available to them, things to look out for. And I was just kind of tapped to do that. And now looking back, it was really helpful in, in like changing the way that I looked at the O&P practice or clinical practice, because it made me understand and see like how important it was for students and residents to get the information in a way that was not like, this is the way it's done. It was, these are the ways that are available to you. So being like on the fence between those two for a few years as a student and then a resident and then an early clinician and then kind of a clinician of a few years, I still got to be in that middle ground between all of it and see that, you know, the questions coming out or the, like the pointed questions from students as like, wait, why did we do this? Or why couldn't we try this? And it made me as a clinician be like, you know, those are really good questions. And maybe I should think about adopting or, or considering some of these things. So I really appreciate that time. And, and I'm thankful that, that Lee taught me to do that so many years ago. You bet. So you had the experience from the leadership perspective. Um, did you also participate when you were a student or was your first kind of experience with that program as you started to get brought under the wing by Lee? Yeah, I think I was a student and a part of the academy for just a few months. And then it was like, you know, it just kind of evolved quickly. And which is what I find in uh, a lot in the academy is that, you know, if you show a little bit of proactiveness, then you quickly find yourself wearing a few hats. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think we're just really good at identifying superstars. That's all it is. <laughs> oh, sometimes I feel like my star is burning out, but um, <laughs> you know. I think it's also times like these, like these podcasts and speaking at other things that uh, reignites that. So uh, I, I do appreciate you bringing me on. And it's uh, hopefully my star shines a little bit brighter. Uh, that's oh, you, that's you a terrible did. pun, probably worth editing out. <laughs> 
No, we're going to force that to stay in. No, no, I, the denial of capabilities. Let's talk a little, I think one of the questions that I, you know, have the most as somebody who's interested in, you know, the CAD CAM world, but definitely not, I wouldn't say I'm super proficient at it, but I'm super curious and I'm, I find myself more and more wanting to utilize this technology as, as my career, you know, continues to go. Maybe you can help. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the different technologies that are out there. You kind of have two sides to this whole equation, right? And one is, you know, the hardware and the scanners and the printers and things like that. And then the other is the software that really helps that workflow happen. If we talk about scanners specifically, you know, what are some of the differences of scanners that are out there? Because there's a wide range of them, I think. And there's also a wide range of costs associated with those. So maybe can we start there? What, what are some of the different technologies in terms of scanners? Yeah, I guess focus mainly on O&P. You know, our four main types of scanners yeah, I guess working from lower cost to, you know, higher cost, lower cost being, you know, your, your handheld device, your iPhone, uh, your Android. It's phenomenal what these scanners now are capable of doing. Your uh, iPhone cameras, we're seeing a lot of companies that are just, you know, that are using that and they're dedicating a business to using the iPhone scanner and then creating a CAD system associated with that. So, you know, it's all internal. And I think that's really good for people are doing it for foot orthotics. It's amazing that all of that can be done right in your hands. Uh, and it really shows how compressed we can make that process of shape capture and then design and then fabrication instead of, you know, doing a, an impression and then scanning the impression. And then that goes to a carver and then, you know, traditional methods are done. You're scanning the foot directly. That's being modified on the phone within a CAD program and then that's going to a 3d printer for like immediate fabrication it's phenomenal some of the i think the the technology there and some understanding of the, the differences in the cameras you know the iphone has their front facing and rear facing camera um they use like a little bit different technologies one of them the lidar camera is really designed for capturing a larger space so like uh, you know, think about like capturing a room for virtual reality or like augmented reality experiences, whereas the true depth camera is for like close up objects. And so that's why I like that. The true depth camera is, is really, I think, being leveraged for scanning with an O&P. I was very, as a total novice, right? Like I was very surprised to learn that because I, when the first version of the the LiDAR scanner came out on the iPhones, I was so excited. It's like, oh, this is, you know, this is going to be the high tech piece. And then yeah. as I started to learn more about the, the companies that are developing software and processes for the iPhone, it was that front camera that was really the, the secret sauce, which I just didn't think that would be the case, but it's really interesting to learn more about that. Yeah. And to have all of that technology packed in single handheld device, if they're able to do that in, you know, a year, two years down the road, like what we're going to see out of it. And maybe some of these purpose-built scanners that we're using for O&P, how much harder it is going to be to justify their use when, you know, Apple's doing such an amazing job and in, in incorporating so much of this technology into a single handheld device. So I'm really excited about the next few years and, and where we see it going with that technology. And, and, that, and most everybody's got one on their hands already, right? right? Like right. it's not a, a separate investment for most people. Yeah. I guess we kind of use it here. We have some technology, but 
we work in at, at Children's, or I work at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, and our system does a phenomenal job of making sure that our patient information is secure and the way that we let technologies into our department or into our, our system, it must meet certain very specific security and protocols. So I think we have a hard time getting like handheld personal devices to utilize these, but like for a small practice that doesn't run into some of those things, it's a complete game changer, you know, as long as they can abide by HIPAA rules. Uh, and they're, they're using some of the apps, apps slash companies that are marketing and, and doing a job of marketing to O&P. I think it's, it's phenomenal. It, it'll be yeah. a changer or it already has been. Sure. And continue to grow. What, what are some yeah. of the other hardware options, some of the other scanning technology? Yeah. I guess a, kind of a step up from there would be your, your infrared technology that's incorporated into the like iPad based scanners. And like even the iPhone cameras, all the way up to these handheld structured light scanners are using a similar technology in which they project, and sometimes they project a, a visible light, other times they project an infrared light or a pattern of dots. Like all of them are projecting something, whether it's visual light or infrared, they're projecting a pattern and then a camera is reading that pattern. So in the infrared, like the iPad-based cameras or scanners, a one point of clarity is that they're called structure scanners. Well, they're projecting a an infrared light, but there's also kind of this this step above in terms of technology, or maybe I'd say a cost above, because a lot of people could debate over uh, whether it's a step above thinking about like accuracy and and precision. Um, but like you have a, a structure scanner, and then you have structured light, and those are two different things. So the structure scanner uses infrared. And it's attached to the iPad. Super easy. The learning curve is pretty much flat. Like we're all accustomed to using an iPad and having a front a forward-facing camera and looking at our looking at the display and, and capturing what's there. So they have done a phenomenal job at making scanning a user-friendly experience. And here at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, years ago, we were trying to incorporate more scanning and the structure-based system was really a game changer for our department. It, it was so easy to learn and to use for you know, scoliosis, knee braces, occasional AFOs, foot orthotics, post-op spine. It was simple. And because of that, you know, we're, we've taken a huge step towards utilizing CAD CAM within our department. But then, you know, you go from the iPad-based structured light scanners to a true structured light scanner, which is a blue or white light optical structure light in which it projects. Like, imagine a barcode of like a blue or, or white barcode being projected onto an object. And then a camera reads how that all of those parallel lines that are a barcode and how they change over the topography of something that the camera is recording that and creating a digital mesh. And I think one of the really important pieces that differentiates structured light from the other scanners is structured light can handle movement or motion. So you have a kid kind of moving around or an adult that just can't sit still, or there's like micro movements, you know, as you're scanning them, the optical structured light technology can handle some of that movement and still get an accurate and precise uh, mesh at the end of it. I think that's a really important point for people to understand is, is movement during a scan because the other technologies really can't handle that. There's ways around it that they're improving on, but the optical light 
or structured optical light scanners do a good job of allowing some movement during the shape capture process. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Good distinction. Ooh, uh, that was a long, long-winded <laughs> answer. Sorry. Hope you're, everyone tuning in is not asleep. <laughs> no, it's fun. It's good right. stuff. And, and I mean, even as somebody who is interested in that, right, like th- that might be the most simple but detailed answer I've ever gotten about those two things. Okay. It's a tough thing to get, like, <laughs> where do you get into the weeds without, you know, really getting into the weeds to understand yeah. some, some of the yeah. details, right? I think one of the more harder parts about it is, is like you could, you know, have all three of those devices in front of you and be successful with all of them with the iPhone like base system here. Like, I mean, it's, it's truly like a point and shoot camera and the structure light scanners, very similar. And what becomes like really challenging is for somebody to say like, no, you know, this scanner is not good for this application. And maybe as a field, that's an area that we really need to look into because the other scanners are like the iPads and the, and the iPhone based, you pick them up and you get, you look at it and you're like, this is a good scan. And, and then you, you know, pull it into measurement and you're only off by a few millimeters and when you take a cast of somebody and they're and they're moving all around, or, you know, you're compressing, and then you look at your hand measurements, you're like, oh, "This is way off." But just like in school, they told me to trust my my shape capture, tr- trust my cast, and you get this like differentiation between your scan and your you know like, like your hand cast. I think that's like a, a part of the scanning process or or the scanning technology that we as a field really need to understand and and help to differentiate between. Okay, this scanner is really good for these things, but maybe the margin of error and the precision and accuracy is just a little bit too much for us to do it on this population of patients. Sure, great point. What about we could spend two hours talking about just these, you know, different pieces of hardware, but just on a, a brief overview to kind of set the table for the printer side of things. What what are some of the technologies and some of the differences? You hear a lot of acronyms get thrown around when we start talking about three D printing, right? And you know, between yeah. MJFs and the FDMs and SLAs and and on and on. So so, can you give us just a real high level overview of what some of those sure. different technologies are? Sure. Yeah. And I think like I guess it'd be really cool and a great moment to kind of take a step back in time. And uh, well, I have like the the more you know music going in my head. But that like taking a step back in history of FDM printing because that's what like if, if you ask somebody about three D printing, the majority of people are thinking about what's called fused deposition model printing. And that, to simplify it, it's a computerized hot glue gun. And, you know, it's a computer that's putting in a G-code. G-code is like what explains what the printer should do, like the directions it should go and the speed it should go. So fused deposition model printing was, was developed decades ago. And then in the 2000s, the major patent on it came up. It was held by a company, and when that patent came up, there was a massive community approach to to leveraging it because it's such a like low cost and approachable printing technology. And so, like in our field, I think we deal with a lot of outside pressure to use three D printing. Like the fused deposition model printing was leveraged and created by a community of people that wanted to make it available to the masses so that, you know, these like small third world countries could have certain things because you could give them a $300 printer and then make the parts available 
and provide them with a, a the STL file for the G code. And all they would do is plug it in and they would create parts, like modern day parts at a very low cost. So this fused deposition model printing is what like, most of us are familiar with and think about. And a lot of the pressures that we experience in O&P about utilizing 3D printing, it's really important to know that like that those pressures are coming from this community environment of like, the technology is there. Why can't we use it? Why can't we leverage it for the greater good? And so I'm always pretty sensitive to thinking about the global impact and how FDM printing could have a true impact across the world. So that's the printing that everyone really knows. And then there's, I'd say like, there's two other main types that our field is really leveraging. Selective laser sintering, which is where like there's a bed material and a laser, uh, a single laser is instead of the like the head, uh, like a hot end head of FDM printing, this is a very high powered laser that goes along a path and it heats up the material just where the laser is at creates like a slice of material that hardens and then print bed goes down and the laser does it again. And then we have SLA printing, which is stereolithography or another kind of similar type is uh, DLP or digital light processing. Both of them are like projecting light onto a bed and they're usually like a resin based. The, the print bed is going down into a bed of resin and then a there's a projection of light of the shape at a specific slice. Then the print bed goes up because that slice is hardened, another projection of light, and it does that repeatedly. And those are like really high resolution. So in our field, like high resolution and like smaller parts. So in our field, I could see them being used for like making components that, you know, you're making a, a mold of, not necessarily for like making end use devices, but components that would contribute to uh, manufacturing. And then there's multi-jet fusion, which like if you're looking at, you know, uh, I'd say like LinkedIn or some of the other webinars on advances in 3D printing, it's a lot of the multi-jet fusion. And that's where there's a, a bed of typically nylon and then a print head comes over that bed of nylon, puts down some liquid material, fusing agents, and then another head comes over, applies an immense amount of heat. And, and it hardens that. And then it just, you know, does that repeatedly and the print bed goes kind of down away from the heads and you're designing these parts within a contained print area and making like very fine end use devices. So those are the major types of printing in our field. And I think the fused deposition model printing, like this low cost printing will continue to be used in our field, but like for end use devices, we're going to see a lot of movement towards the multi-jet fusion or, or that style of printing using nylon or TPUs. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, as somebody who has a, an FDM machine at the house just to play with, and it was kind of a project with my 10-year-old, uh, you know, during COVID and learned a lot about it. And it, it was a great experience. I think it's also something that I started to learn as I experimented with that is especially within our field and the different types of devices that we can make, you know, whether it be check sockets or cranial remolding helmets or foot orthotics or flexible inner sockets, I'm learning that a different technology and a different fabrication style is necessary for a lot of those different types of devices. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I guess an important like point to note about it is that 
like with the the FDM printing, you're, you're printing on a bed, and either the bed is going down or the head is going up, but you're printing like the object and the support structure around it. So at the end of it, like if you have a bunch of overhangs, you also have a bunch of scaffolding that was printed underneath those overhangs to so that you're not just printing in open air. And then in like multi-jet fusion, you're printing within this contained volume. And, and, and so the part is actually encased in a bunch of the nylon or, or the TPU that hasn't received any catalyst or any um, fusing agent. And so in multi-jet fusion, you can print these very intricate devices where you see a lot of uh, lattice structures that can create very lightweight but but strong devices. And so just the style of printing itself kind of opens up the possibilities of, of different parts and how we manufacture them. And that's where multi-jet fusion and that style of printing where you're, you have everything encased in a volume, it's able to do things that are like production-wise that like we've never been able to do. It's the only manufacturing process that allows us to create certain designs. So yes, the style of printing itself has limits to what it can do um, and also significant potential for what we can do. There's a lot of different resources out there, I think, as people start to dive into this, if they're interested. You know, I think YouTube has some great resources. Agree? Is that a good place for people to kind of start just getting some of the info that's out there? Yeah, I, I think YouTube is a great resource, but also I think YouTube can provide maybe some overconfidence. I uh, just installed a, a tank on my toilet and um, I followed YouTube instructions and one of the bolts is leaking. And so that I had to watch another few videos to figure out why the heck a bolt was leaking. And it turns out that, you know, I needed to apply another washer and another bolt on the backside of the tank. And I need to do that. So right now I have a toilet at home that the water's turned off on until I can replace that. So point being, like, I think YouTube's incredible. It has a lot of information out there, but I would be very careful to get on YouTube, make a device and think that I could just put that on a patient. I, I would hope that like nobody is doing that, but I think that it's an extremely powerful resource, but you have to be very cautious of, of how you use it and when you use it. Great information, great, great learning tool. And maybe the more important thing is there's also people out there that can help you along that journey. There's resources like the CAD CAM Society that can really connect you with, you know, sort of that group of subject matter experts or, or just yeah. people who are like-minded and along the same part of the journey as you are. So uh, definitely the society is another place to start if you want to get connected within this, you know, this area of practice. And maybe most importantly, we're realizing that the dancing plumber thing is has failed already. And we need to scrap that idea. I'm withdrawing my funding from that one. You're not uh, investing. You're not an early investor, huh? No, no. I'm out. Shark Tank, I am out. <laughs> okay. If somebody wants to get involved within the CAD CAM Society or, or just kind of learn about some of the, the resources and, and what's available, what's the best place for them to start? One is just is reaching out. Just email with us as an excellent start. We are definitely trying to get more input and then in understanding where members are so that we could, you know, if somebody has a question, we could say, oh, I don't know that, but 
let me point you to, you know, so-and-so that could. So I guess an email with an introduction and, and any knowledge that you have kind of like a brief, you know, high overview of where you stand so that we get kind of a profile and can have a good conversation about what your interests are and also maybe what you're looking for in, in terms of input. Perfect. And I'll point people to, you know, another place that is just great resources is to check out some of the Academy Today articles, you know, the Society Spotlights, some of the the webinars, and there's so many, um, even our next annual meeting coming up, right? There's so many resources that Brian and his colleagues over there at CADCAM Society have put together, and there's a lot of great information out there. So we'll point people in that direction as well. And Brian, I, I you know, we could probably go on for another hour and a half, but we're out of time. And, and I just, I appreciate you coming oh, on and great catching up with you. <laughs> Gosh, there is like so much more that I wish we could cover. <laughs> it's, you know, it's going to be plenty of content now for us to get together and, you know, find another way to either get you back on another episode or yeah. put it out there in the world another way. So that's a, that's a good thing at the end of the day. Okay. Thanks for having thanks. me. Absolutely. Great to see you. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of OMP Clinical Care Insiders. Join us each month as we continue our conversation with key voices in the OMP community, discussing their areas of clinical care and sharing personal experiences as professionals in that specialty. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out the Academy's other podcasts for OMP professionals. The award-winning OMP Research Insights with Dr. Steve Gard and OMP Rising, a podcast created for emerging professionals in our field. For more information on the American Academy of Orthotists and Prosthetists, visit us online at omp.org. Thanks for listening, and we will catch you next time.